Welcome to Bizarre Conspiracies. My name is Connor Toll, and with me is... Eric Patino. Eric, it is good to have you on. And today we are talking about what exactly is a Nazi or a fascist? And how does that distinguish from other things? And what really got me thinking about this is, at the time of recording, this is March of 2023, which in America means that the political season, the presidential races are going to kick off in about seven months, generally around November is when the primaries for president race starts. So I figured now's a good time to figure out exactly what is a Nazi before going into the political cycle, because interesting what happens in the political cycle? Well, some people get called fascist, other people get called Nazis, some people get called communist, and others socialist. Some people say that socialists are communists and they're all one and the same. And then somebody else will come in and say somebody else is a, um, a nationalist or something like that. And what do all these titles mean? And most importantly, what is a neo-Nazi? And how does this relate to conspiracy theories? I'm going to explain what all of these things are in the most clear possible way that I can, and then I'm going to show how it is that someone becomes a fascist and a neo-Nazi. And if it's a pretty popular episode, maybe I'll do one on how one becomes a socialist or a communist or something like that if there's a market for it. So, start this all off with, Eric, are you familiar with the Italian phrase, mina fuego? So, a mina fuego in Italian roughly translates to, I don't give a damn. This was a very popular phrase among the fascists when they were taking over power back in the beginning of World War II. Well, after the end of World War II, around in like the 1920s when the, the, the fascists came to power. So, this mina fuego thing was what they would say when people would accuse them of committing crimes or when they would go out and assassinate some political figure or they would say something which was abhorrent to someone and they'd be like, well, how can you say something or believe something like that or do something like that? And the fascist would reply back to them, Mino Fuego, I don't give a damn. Pretty much means that they are uncaring of what anyone else thinks. They've got their own opinion and they're going to do what they're going to do without anyone else's approval. And that, the, when they came to power, they did not do it through popular vote or anything like that. What they did was Mussolini appeared before the parliament after several years of trying to gain power through votes. And he was never very popular. And as the financial situation in Italy was getting worse and worse. The people were getting desperate. His hatred of the system was resonating with people a little bit, but he never was something people would support. They would just not fight against him. And as his fascists became more violent and to get their way and to push out their agenda, they introduced people to this idea that there would be violence with a fascist. And to get people to condition them to, as long as somebody wasn't coming after me, not to stand up for someone else. This idea of mina fuega, which is, if it's not me that's being attacked, then that's okay. I will only fight for me, but I won't stick my neck out for somebody else. So it was 
cowering people into this position. And when he went to Parliament and marched on Parliament and forced them to vote for him, people were thinking that he was not going to be the dictator that he was going to be. They figured that he would just be a convenient tool. So when they elected him as dictator, essentially, in the Parliament, he was not elected unlike he wasn't voted for. The Parliament put him in power. They did that through the idea of, well, as long as it's not me that's being directly affected, then I'm okay with it. He can go and murder all these other people, but as long as it's not me, it's fine. The idea with these fascists were, they were not trying to be the most popular person. They were just trying not to be somebody that was hated or at least opposed directly by the majority of people. They would always go after the, the outsiders while highlighting the pain points of the country and saying that it was somebody else's fault and then attack somebody else and then somebody would go, ah, well, that person's the issue. I hate that person more than I do the fascists. So I decry what the fascists do, but I won't stand up against them. The fascists will always present themselves as the ones who just wanted what was best for the country. They weren't altruistic. They just said, well, you know, we're the nationalists. We care only about the country. They had this idea of corporatism, which is that the needs of the nation come first, the corporate body of the people. So not a corporation as in a company that we would think of, but corporation as the whole of people is more important than the individual. And in practice, that is completely opposite to what we would call uh, libertarianism, where libertarian is everybody is their own individual and we try to minimize central power as much as possible. But corporatism is we try to minimize the individual as much as possible and emphasize the collective. But really, the fascists in practice did not elevate the society. It was really the party of the fascist that was the the one that was emphasized. So they begin to conflate Italy with the fascist party. So if you didn't like the fascist, well, that meant you didn't like Italy. So in practice, what they stood for was they were against almost everything. They were against democracy, but they were against communism, and they were against socialism, and they were against everything that came up that was not fascism, but fascism itself really did not have a very strong identity. Fascism was what was ever supporting the party. It became that fascism was the support of the party, and the party was didn't really have anything to stand for, but the party. <laughs> so it was a self-perpetuating machine. The party's main goal is to support the party. And the main goal of the party is to support the party. And it's just this cycle that if it isn't for keeping them in power, then it isn't what they would consider good for the country. And if it's not good for the country, well, then it's non-patriotic. That was fascism. It was almost power for power's sake. And they would do it through this idea of isolationism, where anything that isn't the country, so like immigrants are bad because they are from outside the country. They had that country first idea. Those are the main principles of what a fascist is. So that, I think, is one of the reasons why it is so difficult to nail down when somebody says that somebody is a fascist or that sort of thing. It's hard to say that they are or not a fascist because a fascist is somebody who is power hungry for the sake of being power hungry. I mean, you Almost. do hear that word being thrown around a lot in politics. Mm -hmm. 
So to contrast this, to make it a little easier to understand, is the difference between authoritarianism and totalitarianism. A totalitarianism place is something like North Korea, where everything is under control of the government. And an authoritarianist place is more like Russia, where they have where the control of the government and the control of major everyday industries are in control of the government and large policies and that sort of thing that has wide-reaching effect, those are under control of the government. But things that are more peripheral tend to have less government control. And in an authoritarian place, you'll find that the line between what is yours or what is not under your control is kind of blurred. So in Russia, they had a limited amount of free speech, but then they started cracking down on that recently with the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. And so the question of, well, they didn't make any new rules, but with an authoritarian place, the amount of power that the government has is very arbitrary, but it's typically not a totalitarian system like North Korea, where there is no lack of clarity. Everything is part of the control of the government. Fascist groups are not necessarily alt-totalitarianist, but they almost always will morph into that eventually, or at least all the ones that we've seen historically become totalitarianist. So now that you know what authoritarianism and totalitarianism are, those are not necessarily independent of fascism, but they're different words that help you understand what the difference between something like communism and socialism and fascism and how they all are different. A communist group is somewhere where they own all of the property. So the, the Soviet Union was communist, despite what some people may tell you. It was 100% communist. So this communist country was owned by the government was the businesses were all owned by the government. The houses were all owned. The apartments, the farms, everything that was an industry or could be an industry or could be a very valuable asset was owned by the state. A socialist thing would be similar, but there would be less things that are held by a socialist country. The government would have large amounts of ownership in things like industry, but they may not own all the industries. They probably wouldn't own your house. They may own apartments, but they wouldn't own all the land. In a communist country, there is no ownership of land. That's more of a socialist thing. So what makes communists and socialists, what's the real standing out is who owns items. In a fascist place, typically the ownership of like a business or that sort of thing would be the individuals. However, the individuals who get to do the owning tend to be people who are politically connected, but it's not owned by the government. It's owned by people who are in power, but it is separate from the government. So take, for instance, you have, say, Adolf Hitler is in a fascist place. He does not have control over everything because he's not a communist. But if he wants a company that, to do something, all the people who own those companies will typically be his friend. He might own, say, a factory. 
but that won't be something that's part of the government. But the government will have say in what all the businesses will do. They have total power over the rules that the businesses follow. But the ownership still belongs to the individuals, even though the individuals in a totalitarian government will be people who are approved by the state. Somebody who is not liked by the state won't own a car. Well, at least not in Nazi Germany. Everyone who owned a car were people who were approved by the government. So it was more of like heavy corruption. So that's the main difference, I would say, between communism, socialism, and Nazis is, or fascists, is the fascists, you can own your own things. And in a socialist place or communist place, more of that is owned by the state is really the, the main difference. Also, fascists tend to be more, not tend to be, are, <laughs> they just are more xenophobic. That's the word I'm looking for. They hate certain groups and it doesn't even need to be reasons to it. But you'll find with neo-fascists is if you look at a neo-fascist group today, they will be very nationalistic. And in that nationalistic sense, they will suppress minorities within their country. So I brought two examples of this, the Greek Golden Dawn and the Turkish National Movement Party. Have you heard of those, Eric? I, I've heard of the Greek one, but not the other one. So the Greek one, there's a little bit of um, a little pause because the Golden Dawn can also refer to a cult movement, which I believe is separate. But yeah, again, that yeah, 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 there's one that I think was associated with Aleister Crowley. But yeah, no, I think I have heard about the one in, in Greece. So I picked these two because there is a very strong anti-Greek feeling in Turkey. And in Greece, there's a very strong anti-Turkey movement. There's two nationalistic parties in each of those governments that are very powerful. But wait, why do they, they hate each other? Well, that goes back to... I mean, that goes back to Roman times, I suppose. They have a very long history of fighting wars with one another. If you go back to the fall of the Ottoman Empire, when the, the Ottoman Empire fell apart at the end of World War One, they were on the axis. They were against the Allies, and so the Allies all wanted to break up the Ottoman Empire and take pieces as colonies. So I believe France took Syria and northern Syria and northern no they took all of syria and northern iran while britain took palestine and southern iraq and then there was russia took pieces from the north greece was supposed to take it took some islands in the uh Mediterranean, and they also were going to take the western parts of Turkey, and Constantinople was going to go to the Russians. But then there was a second war after World War One, where the, the now forming Turk nation fought off the Greeks and was able to retain hold of Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. And I mentioned this in a previous podcast about the top 10 false flag attacks. One of them was mentioned there that there was a false flag attack perpetrated by the Turks against the Greeks that were native inside of Turkey at the time, and the Turks then used that false flag attack to do a bit of genocide against the Greeks inside of Turkey. Anyway. Mm. And then the Turks also have a few other minorities that they repress in Turkey, such as the Kurds and the Armenians. If you've heard of the Armenian genocide, that would be also a nationalistic I see. feeling that goes on in Turkey. So the nationalist movement of 
Party of Turkey is a neo-fascist group which preys upon the hatred of these minorities in Turkey as well as the idea of supporting Turkish power without collaboration with other states because that hasn't worked very well in Turkish history. They, they often have a lot of enemies. And so you'll see Turkey likes to play in modern day history a little bit off of both sides where they still have allies with Russia, but also allies with the EU. But they're also kind of not friends of either because Russia is a terrible friend to have. And <laughs> the EU has had bad relations with Turkey as well. Turkey has all these war crimes and human rights violations in its past, which they get condemnation internationally from others' groups, and that doesn't help with international relations at all. And then in Greece, they have leftover roots from Nazism, pretty much, because the Nazis actually took over Greece during World War II. I mean, it's hard to say, because uh, I actually didn't study this too much, the history of Nazis in Greece and how profound it had, but I do know that the ideas of racial superiority still remains in Greece, and the Golden Dawn is, is definitely plays off of that a bit. And when Greece had that major financial crisis just a few years ago, probably no more than 10 years ago, do you remember that Greece went bankrupt, Eric? The government went bankrupt? Uh, I do not know. Yeah, well it did. It was a terrible economic crisis. And because of that, they had hyperinflation and they had all these different financial problems that sprung up after that. And so you combine this hatred of the Turks and the Albanians with the fact that they also are going through this financial crisis, these neo-Nazis play upon the nationalistic spirit to try and get people to turn against minorities and also to support growth internally at cost of all else, that nothing's more important than state. But in reality, it's kind of a front because fascists are generally just in it for the power. They never deliver on their promises of prosperity. So what you end up doing is crimes for the sake of getting other groups power. So the idea that I'm trying to show here is that um, neo-Nazis or neo-fascists, which the difference between a fascist and a, a Nazi is typically Nazis are, I mean, they're fairly similar, but generally Nazis are more racist than fascists. But they'll do the same thing. They'll promise a great amount of fixes to our current issues. So they'll be like, ah, look at all these problems we have. We can fix it. We have the uh, solutions to everything. And the problem is there's those people who are holding us down and then they'll put some sort of a scapegoat out there, whether it be the Jews or the Kurds or the Armenians or the Greeks or the Turks or the whoever. Sure. Anybody. The others. And then they will have a lot of populist talk, but they won't actually have populist uh, reforms or uh, policies. So if there's somebody who is saying, well, I'm going to keep from outsourcing jobs to other countries, but when they get to power, all they wanted was the power and they don't actually implement those policies, you may be looking at a neo-fascist. If this person is always 
saying that the only thing that matters is looking after your own country and not working in collaboration with other countries, that person might be a neo-fascist. If the person is scapegoating minorities, they may be a neo-fascist. If they mm -hmm. rely upon violence and big riots and lawlessness and everything is excused for the sake of, you know, the, the greater good or the, the party or whatnot, which, you know, they say for the nation, but really they mean for the party, which what they're part of, because my party is the nation sort of a thing, then they're probably a fascist. If they do all of these things consistently over a period of time, then they are a neo-fascist. So that is how you recognize a neo-fascist. Scapegoating, talking, but not delivering on promises and xenophobia and opportunistic rhetoric. Mm -hmm. That, over a long period of time, are generally what will give away a neo-fascist. When you start to see the pattern on the worldwide stage and then to turn your eye back to your own country and say, where do I see that in my own country? And then you make decisions for yourself because, you know, calling somebody a fascist does not really improve the political landscape in a political conversation. That just sure. makes everything worse. So I'd rather somebody came to their own conclusion or come to right, the conclusion. Right. And I'm not saying that there are fascists or that I am saying that, oh, absolutely, I know. What is it that McCarthy, the um, the guy who did the Red Scare, I have a list of communists sure, yeah. in, the, in the Congress. I'm not saying I know that there's a bunch of secret fascists out there. What I'm saying is that there is the opportunity with the economic crisis that we have and there is a lot of division where we like to scapegoat people for everything so maybe just be aware of that and see what is and is not a fascist go okay this is close to fascism but this is not actually fascism because it has these significant differences so to be more educated on what is and is not fascist so you don't call somebody mm. who's not a fascist a fascist right and somebody who is a fascist you go ah they're a fascist <laughs> so it's useful to have knowledge of both what is and what is not because to be wrong in either category is not helpful that will conclude today's episode any final conclusions conrad it was dietrich bonhoeffer a guy who was a big opponent of nazis in germany and he was actually executed by the nazis right before the war ended and he said that his definition of stupidity is people lying to themselves to do what they would otherwise consider abhorrent and that is one thing that people who are trying to implement totalitarian governments do. The Mina Fuego idea yep. is, I don't care. I'll turn my eyes to the worst of atrocities because I make some sort of rationalization of, well, it's just, it's not me. It's somebody else who's doing it or I'm not involved. The idea of, I'm going to tell myself these little lies it's not me that's doing it. It's somebody else. I am I am free of it. But it's the abhorrent thing. And you wouldn't be able to stand for it if you didn't tell yourself these lies. And that is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called stupidity. Lying to yourself to allow something in which you would otherwise abhor venomously. So that was what I'd close out with. Very good. Well, thank you all for listening. And we'll catch you in the next episode. 